Hi everyone, this is Eugene from 5-Minute Economics and um, this week we're going to talk about the very very low birth rates in Singapore. Now, um, something that you might not already know is that Singapore has the fifth lowest total fertility rate in the world. Right, so our total fertility rate in 2020 was 1.10 right um at 1.10 right we are actually bottom five in terms of ranking worldwide so um that there's only one country that's um lower than us and that's korea with a total fertility rate of 0.9 right singapore has a total fertility rate of 1.1 this is similar to hong kong which is also ranking at which is also having a tfr 1.1 so we actually rank fifth lowest in the world in terms of total fertility rate Right, to replace itself, the population needs a total fertility rate of 2.1. It just gives you a reference. Total live births in 1992 was 49,400. It was 40,760 in 2002, 42,663 in 2012, and in 2020, it was 38,590. Right, so um, I, I think that this is actually a very, very urgent issue that we should work towards resolving as a country. Now, um, what, what low birth rate? is going to entail is that um, the working population is going to shrink and you you know that when the working population shrinks the working population itself being smaller it has to shoulder a larger tax burden now um schools have actually undergone mergers in the last few years no if, if you're a jc student you will know what i'm talking about that's why you now you now have uh, jc's like asr jc tm jc jp jc and yi jc these are these are merged jc's because of the shrinking cohort sizes Right. Um, we are also not likely to actually try to solve this problem by bringing in more foreign labor because worldwide it has become very po politically unpopular to bring in foreign labor. Right. In fact, um, this is also something that a lot of people don't realize. Our foreign labor force right, dropped substantially from 1.42 million in December 2019 to 1.19 million in June 2021. That's about 230,000 less foreign workers in Singapore because of the pandemic. Right, so um, our actually foreign labor forces have has actually been shrinking because of the, of the pandemic. A lot of people left the country. Okay, now let's dissect a little bit about why Singaporeans are having less children. Now, the high cost of living is actually one of the common reasons why people say that you know they don't want to have kids. They delay having kids, or some people say, hey, um, I don't want to have so many kids. Maybe I just have one. Right, uh, that's because you know um, they, they, they think that cost of living is very high and you know what, what are some of the things that you have to pay for when you have a kid? You have to pay for diapers, infant milk formula, food, toys, childcare if both parents are working. And um, if you have if you're a young couple and you just started working, you might not actually have much savings or remaining budget from your money income to you know pay for uh, taking care of an extra person in your life. Right, and a lot of people also, you know, they, they have certain ambitions and they regard the prime childbearing years to also be their prime career building years. So a lot of people, you know, they, they think that, you know, it's a trade-off. They rather prefer to spend these years building a proper career. Right, um, a lot of my friends, a lot of friends who are of mine who are currently married with children, they, they mostly got attached before or during university days. So um, the single rates have also gone up. I think it's because it's very hard to find a life partner to settle down with after starting work because your social circle can get smaller or limited. So for those of you right, currently in JC or you're going to university or you're already in university, your best time to find a life partner is actually during university days. Right? Now, um, the other reason that's often being blamed for couples not wanting to have children or um, having more children is that they find that the education system is very stressful to put a child through it. 
right? Uh, a lot of people feel compelled to to send their kids for enrichment, to send their kids for tuition, which imposes a financial burden. But this is more so on indi- individual expectations, right? Actually, a lot of reasons that um why we're not having so many kids is related to our expectations of 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 the whole society or what you know raising a kid requires, right? So uh, whatever it is, I think. Uh, whatever the reason is we will definitely need to find ways to continue to raise the birth rates it's not that we are not already trying so but you know it hasn't quite been working out birth rates have continuously plummeted right despite all the efforts to actually try to raise birth rates so i think we need to put more brains right towards trying to solve this birth rate problem right so i, I do have a few suggestions right um the first suggestion i have is to make prenatal care free Right, um, basically, let's treat every pregnant woman like a queen, right? So, um, you know, prenatal care ref- refers to like, you know, the cost to uh, visit a gynae. So the cost to visit a gynae can be as low as $30 if you go for subsidized healthcare in Singapore. If you go to a private gynae, it can go up to $200 per visit. The cost of supplements, hospital stay, hospital stays can cost, right, uh, three to $5,000 if you are going to uh, a subsidized uh, healthcare in Singapore at a at a public hospital it could cost all the way up to twenty thousand dollars if you were to stay in a private hospital, so um you can go and Google and find out how much it costs to give birth to a child in Singapore and you'll find that right the the cost varies quite substantially but definitely not cheap, right um but I, I want I want to put this across to all of you to think about right if if you don't really know right um active NSF there is um you know. Uh, males, 18-year-old males serving their two years of national service. If you don't really know, medical care and hospital care is actually free. Right? You, if, you, if you're an NSF, you're serving your two years NS, you break an arm, right? or you go and see a doctor, anything happens to you medically, you visit a public hospital, it's free of charge. Every single dollar is written off. You don't pay a single cent. Now, why do we do this? Because these men, they're serving the nation. So uh, when I was serving at my, my two years of NS, I also got free health care. Now, actually, if you think about this, right, when you consider the very, very low birth rates, right, I would actually argue that women giving birth to children in Singapore, they are actually in the act of doing a national service, right, and we should also provide them with free medical care. So, you know, if, if we provide um, uh, women who are going through pregnancies, right, um, with free medical care, right, in public hospitals, right, this can at least make the starting journey or the pregnancy itself more frictionless by, you know, reducing the financial burden that young parents have and giving them a head start by f- having giving them free medical care. So I think this is something very basic that we can do. And it will likely cost, I've, I've done some um, back, back of the head calculations, I think it will cost the government around $1 billion extra yearly to do so. But given our low birth rates, I think this is more than worthy, more than a worthy investment to do so. All right, um, let's go on, right? My second suggestion is to actually provide more support in the early years of a child's life. Right, parents already get a bunch of benefits like the baby bonus, top up in the CDA account, MediSafe grants, which you can all use for your child's medical expenses. But I think um, you know, the early years are actually considerably still more expensive than you know when a kid is going through primary or secondary school. You know, when a kid is going through primary or secondary school, you have government schools, right? That the education is actually quite subsidized and affordable. Right, it's actually early childhood that is rather expensive. So um, we should strive to make early child education as affordable as our government schools from primary to pre-tertiary education. So um, 
that, that that's one thing we can do right make it as affordable as your general primary and secondary school education now we should also consider maybe increasing the length of paternity leave i'm speaking for myself of course right from two weeks to perhaps two months right two is really really very short for paternity leave i think in in this age and time right um, a lot of men they will want to play a greater role in parenting as well and two weeks is really far too little to you know take some time to spend with the family Right, so maybe we can up these two weeks um, uh, paternity leave to two months. Now, now mothers, of course, they, who undergo childbirth, they, they, they deserve the four months maternity leave to recover. But I think fathers can also benefit from this ability to spend more time with their newborns. So again, this is to actually help parents feel less friction on getting started on the journey to having children. Right, uh, my last point is actually on P1 registration. Now, a lot of parents actually they are very stressed about P1 registration. I think that's one of the most stressful events of their lives. Now at this present phase, uh, present point, right, there are a few phases of registration. Phase one is those with siblings already in the school. Phase two A is if you're alumni, member of the school advisory committee, or if you're staff. Phase two B is if you're a parent volu volunteer or you're endorsed by the church, endorsed by a clan connected to the school, or you're an active community leader. And phase two C is anybody. Right now, um, right from the onset, there are actually 40 seats reserved for phase 2C. This is reflected from this year. Previously, it was 20 seats and 20 seats reserved for phase 2B. Now, so um, how it works is that if a, a school has 20 for 240 places, then 180 places will be made available in phase 1. Right? Then the leftover vacancies from phase 1 go to phase 2A and then it, this cascade downwards. So uh, by the time you reach phase 2C, it's usually left, you, you only have the reserve like places left for the very popular schools. So this actually means, right, an overwhelming number of places go to the alumni of school. This is by virtue of where your parents used to study. So I I'll just give you some numbers, right? So in schools like Aitong, right, um, last year, phase 2A1 and phase 2A2, which is if you're alumni, SAC or staff, 113 um, places were going to this uh, alumni SAC or staff, right? That is like a good 40% plus, right, of the entire school. This applies to popular schools like Nanyang Primary, ACS Junior, ACS Primary, where, you know, uh, by the time Phase 2A ends, more than over 100 overseas have already been awarded to alumni. Right, so... Um, there, there, there. I mean, there have been several changes to the policy last year. Like they actually increased the number of seats in phase two seats to be reserved to forty seats, right? Um, but I, I feel that um, it actually makes this whole registration thing very, very stressful because, right? Um, is is if you imagine if you stay near to your house, uh, if you have a primary school near to your home, but you can't attend that primary school because you know. Um, seats are given away to alumni first and then you go to some primary school that's further away right I, so so i think that that's that actually quite that's actually quite stressful now um phase one makes sense because phase one is for siblings and um it makes sense because you want to have simplified logistics of sending all your children to one school but phase 2a which is the first priority phase and there's no specific caps at all just going to alumni sec members or staff members it makes very little sense right so my suggestion would be to cap phase 2a and phase 2b to one third of the total vacancies available in the school because phase 2c is purely based on distance so you should ensure that there is a healthy number of seats available in phase 2c so that you know people living near the primary school they they can have a good chance of getting to a primary school near their home 
Right, and I think that, you know, primary school starts really early, like, you know, have to report to school by usually 7.15 every day. We should have the little ones go to school, go to a school near their home so they can rest and have much needed sleep than, you know, to send from one part of the island to another part of the island, right, just because you're an alumni, right? So I think policy planning should actually be done based on logical and pragmatic approaches, right? So um, that's, that's, these are all my suggestions and this is this week's super long episode on 5-Minute Economics. I'll catch you on the next one.